On today's show, we have Bill Barhite, the CEO of Abra. Bill is a returning guest we had on back in 2019 and an inspiration for the space. Abra is also known as the bank of the future and offers a crypto brokerage supporting over 125 cryptocurrencies, high yield interest on cryptos, and a lending account that provides a low interest line of credit against your crypto holdings. Bill, welcome back. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, you know, I guess it's been a little while. A lot of things have changed in the market. So kind of what's happening on your side at Abra and what are you guys offering today? How have things changed? Yeah, crazy times. So the core business has really gone straight up and to the right over the last two years, really since the beginning of COVID. We've seen an explosion in user accounts, both on the retail side, as well as the institutional side. AUM has peaked at, at over $2 billion. It's obviously come down a little bit with mark-to-market on the crypto prices, but it's still way higher than it's been. And I think if we got anything close to crypto prices from the last run-up, we'd be at probably 3 to $4 billion in AUM, to put it in context. So really tremendous growth for us. And this is, by the way, you know, a few hundred million pre-COVID. So we're a couple of hundred employees now. I think we were 15 or 20 at the beginning of 2020. So so it's been tremendous for us. And, you know, look, these are not easy times to be investing in. Crypto is probably the last thing some people are thinking about. However, it really is prudent if you're really paying attention to what's going on in the markets to say, okay, now when valuations are starting to look in some places like kind of silly low, you know, it really does beg the question, how should I be allocating What's going to happen over the next two to three years, given the macro situation? What does that mean for my asset allocation? And Abra is in a, we're not, we're not investment advice givers, but we give you tools to kind of help figure this out for yourself. And a lot of people seem to like that. So, so we're really prepared to help people weather this storm, but at the same time, recognize that crypto is a key part of a sound kind of asset allocation model now. And so we're just here to help people make that happen. And also at the same time, help people with tax issues to say, okay, I'm already you know, well in the money on crypto. I don't want to sell. How do I get a tax advantage from this? Or I'm prepared for the next run-up. And how do I take advantage of that without having to pay massive capital gains taxes, which is a big problem here in the US. So you guys are kind of, are you broken down in like two avenues right now with like Abra Exchange Services, we'll call it, and then capital management? Yeah, yeah. So we have our, our retail business, and our institutional business. And on the retail side, we have just our straight up self-service consumer model where you can download our app and soon it'll be on the web and you can get up and running in a couple of minutes. And we also have our private client services for retail, which is for high net worth investors, helping people with tax strategy around crypto lending. And then we have our institutional services, which is everything from lending to our funds, which basically offer similar services on the high yield side. And lending side, but you know now servicing a couple hundred institutions as well. Because you guys have some recent press releases with some capital that you guys have raised for some certain funds. Can you kind of give us some insights there? What are you planning on doing? Yeah, right on. So we started a new uh, subsidiary called Abra Capital Management, which we're a general partner in along with some other folks that help run it. And uh, Abra Capital Management is already managing tens of millions of dollars and growing fast. There's five funds involved. Three are for earning yield on crypto. And so focusing on either institutions or trusts that want to go kind of a, we call it a K1 route versus a 1099 route, which has a lot of tax advantages if you're planning to hold for a long period of time, because you can basically defer taxes indefinitely. 
And then the other two funds are kind of our what's next funds. I'm using air quotes here. And what's next either in the token economy or in the equity world. So we have an early stage token fund and we have an early stage venture fund, which is a first for us. And the reason that we're doing these is that we have so much access to early stage companies in the space. I can't even begin to count the number of companies that have come to Abra asking for help, asking for us to use their product, asking for listing help, either with us or our exchange partners, et cetera, et cetera. So I've ended up investing in some of these companies. And now you know a lot of our, our investors in some of the other products I mentioned have said, well, hey, I want to take advantage of this as well. And, and so we've set up these vehicles for them to do so. Now, for these uh, vehicles, this is going to be accredited or a qualified partner. What are the qualifications for the listeners? Yeah, these are traditional funds. And so it's accredited investors, institutions. We have offshore feeder funds set up for them as well. It's kind of a traditional asset management fund solution. And so if anyone listening, where would they go just to find out more information about that? Oh, yeah, on Aber.com, if you click on institutions or fund products, you'll, you'll find it very quickly and you'll be able to fill out a form to get access to the, to the asset management team. All right. Awesome. So why don't we go back on uh, valuations, right? I mean, you know, just uh, three to six months ago, some of the valuations we were seeing in the crypto market were pretty high and now those are starting to come down. Can you give the listeners insights to where that was and maybe where we're at now and where maybe the uh, median is? Sure. So I'll start with Bitcoin because that's kind of the bellwether for the space. There's a chart that I like to show that basically shows kind of the median price for Bitcoin going back to 2012. And if you look at that chart, especially on a log chart, it really looks like it's up and to the right, kind of like Amazon from 1997 to to 2000 and probably 17 or 18. It looks like it's up and to the right, but Amazon actually fell more than 50% multiple times during that time frame. But when you're experiencing exponential growth, you can have those blips and still basically look like you're going up and to the right. Bitcoin is showing similar trend. Now, what's been interesting about the Bitcoin price is that it's never been more than one degree standard deviation below that median for an extended period of time. And it's only reached two standard deviations twice. And it bounced off it hard the first time. And it just hit now for the second time. And so my gut tells me that because this recession is coming harder and faster than anyone thinks, we may wiggle that that two standard deviations for a while. But even if we stay, to put this in context, even if we stay two standard deviations below that median for a year, the price still has to get up to 75000 to put that in context, okay? So Bitcoin at these prices, according to historical trends and exponential growth in the usage of it is way undervalued by any measure that we've historically had. And that includes stocks that also show exponential growth tendencies like Apple, a post iPhone, Amazon, eBay during its heyday, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's my bellwether. And a lot of other tokens that have shown similar exponential network effects in usage like Solana are similarly undervalued and had shown basically the same growth models during their initial spurts of exponential growth as Ethereum, which looked just like Bitcoin before it during similar growth phase. And I think Ethereum is eventually going to lead the way because of the use cases it has versus Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the hardest money that we've ever seen and is definitely the most pristine digital property we've ever seen. But the use cases for Ethereum 
are much broader than Bitcoin and I think will will outpace in terms of exponential growth even in the coming couple of years. So there's a few things there. One, I think uh, Ethereum bottomed out somewhere in the 10, 13-ish billion market cap last cycle, right? And Solana's maybe on its way there, right? Do you think that some of these layer ones, maybe like Solana might show... Uh, similarities in price as Ethereum did, meaning, you know, kind of bottom out, maybe that 10, 15 billion-ish, and then the exponential rise again over the next three to five years like Ethereum has? Yes, it's possible. Let me let me give you the pros and cons, or not necessarily cons, but more like the risks. So, yep. yeah, so Ethereum, basically, because of its network effects, has looked exactly like Bitcoin, which has looked exactly like Amazon, back to my earlier example, right? Solana has looked exactly like Ethereum in terms of price mapped to network effects that the commodity is shown. The challenge with Solana is because it's so early and because it's getting use cases driven by the lack of scalability in Ethereum, the question becomes, as Ethereum starts to scale, will we need multiple layer ones? Now, my belief is yes. I think there's going to be lots of layer one protocols that solve niche problems that are going to show exponential growth, Okay, which means that the price models should look like Ethereum, which should look like Bitcoin at scale. And like I said, Ethereum will probably surpass Bitcoin in terms of exponential growth. So my belief is, to your question, there will be several layer one protocols that show that level of growth because of the niche problems they solve. There are some more risks because it's very early, certainly earlier with Solana than it is with Ethereum. I think Ethereum is solidifying itself as having those early network effects, even if it isn't the best scaling technology for crypto that's out there, that ship has already sailed. Is there any other things that you're starting to look at as we move into this next cycle? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, look, our, <laughs> our early stage token fund is all over this, right? And so we have multiple investments in lots of, of different types of crypto assets. I, I can give you some examples. Yep. We're invested in a, in a project called Rune, which I think is, is super interesting. We're invested in, in ThorChain. We're invested in Render. I think Render is interesting because there's going to be all this hardware out there once we migrate to proof of stake. And this hardware could basically be used for rendering farms for the metaverse, which I think is super interesting. We still have a position in Helium. Anyway, it, it's a long list. And basically what it maps to is, to, to kind of put a kind of a bow on it, is our thesis on where Web3 is, what the picks and shovels, the platforms are for Web3. And if this idea that the tokenization of everything is coming, which is what we believe Web3 is all about, and Ethereum really represents kind of the core platform for that, it's kind of, we call it the currency of culture and community for the future. What are the platform services in a decentralized world that need to exist around that? I'm personally not very good at picking consumer-facing winners, uh, even though I run one, which I think is going to be a winner. <laughs> but other than that, I prefer for my investments to look at the platform plays around this that I think that are going to help us on this path towards decentralization. And it's very hard in that model to make equity bets. And so that's where the token economy lends itself. Now, separate from that, we are making equity bets. We've just just started. We've made our first that we haven't announced yet. And, and there will be more that we're working on now. But the equity bets actually become harder 
because you know the question becomes in a decentralized world what does a centralized entity offer and um, you know that's part of our challenge at Aber to make sure that as a crypto bank we're adding value in a centralized model in what is essentially becoming a decentralized world so obviously uh, you know maybe people have been around for the last four and a half years have seen you know these two different cycles where tokens have this run up we'll call it on like a speculation come back down right and kind of what I think everyone's looking for is like that adoption curve or just, you know, the utility of these tokens are more tightly integrated into the projects. You know, how long do you think that actually takes? So when you say takes, you mean to prove that the value is there for the token? Yeah, like we have stability into the token model where, you know, the utility, you know, it runs like a flywheel. You think that's another cycle? You think it's like 10 years out? What's your thoughts on just what's happening there? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're there for Bitcoin, Ethereum. Binance, it was really interesting how they did this because as a centralized exchange, they kind of create a forcing function on BNB via buybacks and other clever means. Maybe it's achieved escape velocity. I haven't dug in enough to know. It certainly gets usage, but you need it for certain things within the Binance environment. And they've been paying developers and using their venture fund very cleverly to get buy-in for the Binance chain model, you know, which is BNB. And there are some layer twos now, you know, Polygon is super interesting. Matic is interesting. Chainlink is interesting, which, you know, these are projects that I think could achieve escape velocity in a Web3 environment. And some of the other ones I mentioned that we have positions in, they're very early bets. You know, the idea that you would need to put a coin in the machine to render your stuff for the metaverse, which is what renders doing, could be interesting. But those projects are all, they're unproven. That's why we basically made the bets because we wanted to get in early. And if we're right, then we generate outsized returns, right? And so that was the idea of the token fund. But to your question, all super early, relatively unproven in, in most cases and represents high-risk venture style bets in a token model. Awesome. And you guys have a rewards token, is that correct? The CPRX? Yeah, we, we um, have as means that we've adopted it. We didn't create it. Uh, it was created by the Crypto Banking Alliance in, in Switzerland. And we love the project and it's very early. We're going to be making some announcements at Consensus in early June, explaining where we're going with this kind of next generation stuff. We're going to be working on payments and NFTs and I can't give it all away now, but it's really all going to take advantage of, of C-Perks as the rewards token. But but not only for rewards, but going the other way, where you actually has utility and you can use it for payments and you get benefits by using CPERCs for payments. And it really creates more of a community groundswell and, and network effect where it becomes a, like a, a really strong feedback loop. The more people use it, the more it's worth, the more you want to hold the rewards and stake the rewards. And before you know it, like I said, you have this feedback loop. So is that similar to BNB a little? A little bit. Uh, you know, I think because we've got so many more projects in the background out of the gates in terms of payments and NFTs. When they first launched BNB, there was nothing but the exchange, right? Because that's where the state of crypto was. And so we have many more tools available to us today than they did then. That's the positive. The negative is, is that there's so much competition at the exchange level. I can't do what they did, right? That ship has sailed. I mean, I, can't, I couldn't compete with them on their terms. I have to innovate and add way more value via CPERCs than they had to add because there was nobody else doing it when they launched the BNB token. So, so that's good for consumers because basically what I'm saying is I have to add way more value now than BNB did at the analogous time four or five years ago because they had no competition at that point for a, a, an exchange token. 
So why don't we hit, you know, for all of our listeners, obviously there's a handful of exchanges people have access to, right? Right. Everyone has different types of cryptos available, different lending services. What is it about what you guys are offering that maybe stands out or people can expect when they come to your platform versus going somewhere else? Yeah. So what I hear from our customers, and I'll start out by saying when we built Abra, there was very few, a small group of us. We were sitting around a table and make decisions. We can't do that today. And I mean that in the sense of we're just too big, not because we're remote. But we said, okay, what do we want that's not in the market today? And we basically listed all of the things, not just features, but I would say values in a company that was going to be managing people's crypto in a centralized model for what's becoming a decentralized economy. What do we want? And we built it for ourselves first, knowing that we couldn't be the only five people that wanted this. It's not possible, right? Uh, it, well, it is possible, but we, we were convinced that, that that wasn't gonna be true. And we were right. And the things that we wanted for ourselves were trust, meaning we could trust what was happening to the funds because we knew, and we were willing to basically tell everyone. There's not a lot of companies out there that basically explain how their risk management processes work. And I get on a an AMA every single Friday and answer the same questions over and over again about risk management. And I'm fine to do it. I'm happy to do it. But most people don't, right? And I want to basically have, you know, lending practices that actually map to traditional fixed income risk management, uh, you know, variables, right? For things that most people in our space don't understand, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, right? That's kind of part one and two kind of wrapped in one. Then to say, okay, well, what about lending practices for retail, right? So how are you making decisions? And so we basically said, hey, we've analyzed this. And if I'm holding your collateral, there's no reason that for ultra low LTVs, I should even be charging interest because of the way our lending models work, because we're actually making money on that. And so, you know, we actually were the first to even try to do that. Then we said, okay, let's strip away all of the super crazy advanced trading stuff that the majority of people don't care about and don't want. And so when we put that all together, we ended up with this super simple, fully integrated crypto banking solution that no one else had. The ability to trade, the ability to earn high yield, the ability to borrow, the ability to have a safe custody solution all in one place is still something that I feel that Abra has the best product in the world at, and in many cases, the only one available to certain certain consumers. For where you're at now, how do you expand that to people around the world and grow your user base, right? What is maybe the biggest challenge too? Yeah. So the model that I'm describing certainly caters itself immediately to people who are already kind of crypto initiated, which is kind of implied in your question. That's a challenge, right? So for people who are in crypto initiated, obviously the question becomes, okay, well, if I'm going to use Abra to get access to Bitcoin or Ethereum for the first time, one, how do I know about it? And two, why Abra versus someone else? And so that's where I think, you know, the ease of use of what we've created. And, and again, you know, this is the biggest challenge for us by far is awareness. It's not ease of use because I think we've, we're already there in terms of having the easiest to use product. But if you don't know about it, then it doesn't matter, right? And so I spend an outsized percentage of my time now just focusing on marketing programs, awareness programs, public speaking, whatever it takes to get the flywheel continually moving, and then looking at some next generation stuff that I think also represents more of a person-to-person -person awareness model for Abra going forward to address 
that challenge because, you know, like I said, the average user who's just getting into crypto for the first time is not yet there in terms of, I need to borrow against my crypto. I need to earn yield on my Ethereum. I need to stake. They don't even understand what I'm talking about. They just like, okay, what's the easiest way for me to buy a few thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, a few thousand dollars worth of Ethereum, get my toes wet and start educating myself. And so we've built a model which has a spectrum of capabilities from that new newbie who has nothing to the advanced user who's saying, okay, I've got a couple of million dollars worth of Bitcoin and I want to borrow $100,000 against it to access the gains without paying taxes. And that's a wide spectrum. And so that's where we are in that exponential growth when you're going from a couple hundred million users to a couple of billion users. But that's the way it goes, right? So, so we've built a tremendous amount of educational content, podcast and video content, paid advertising models to get the word out for all aspects of this kind of user spectrum at the same time. Some providers out there are definitely expanding customer service, right? So the more retail users you bring on, you know, you tend to need to expand your customer service. And it seems to be a little bit of a problem in the industry as a whole, right? So why don't you kind of hit on like, you know, maybe yourself, but even as the industry, like how can we work on that, you know, moving forward? That was one of the tenants that we talked about when we were sitting around the table saying, okay, what would we want for ourselves? Because it, you're, you're, you're being very kind in, in your comments. It's actually been a disaster. <laughs> every time there's a run-up, I mean, first of all, yeah. I'm not going to name the names because everybody who's in crypto knows who I'm, I'm talking yeah. about. When the price spikes, certain services go down. It's like clockwork, right? It's almost scary the, the way you can predict who's going to go down based upon certain movements in the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you would think it's like remember the Twitter fail whale from like a few years ago. I don't know how old you are, but but when you know Twitter first started, they had a major problem keeping the site up when usage was spiking, and they figured it out eventually. And I've, I haven't seen a fail whale in a long time, but the equivalent fail whale in our space one is still there. We'll see the next when 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 Bitcoin hits a hundred thousand, who's going down? We haven't had that kind of downtime ever. But more importantly, we said we want support to actually be a service benefit to our users and not feel like a black hole. For some of our private clients, we've actually helped them with support and competing services to get their assets off and into ABRA to earn yield. And they said, I can't even get them to respond. And not only are you responding, you're helping me with them. And so that's what it takes, right? We have live support options, 800 numbers. You're going to get a call back. We have live support in the app 24-7. To me, if you're asking people to trust you with their money, this is table stakes. And the fact that others don't see it that way is kind of shocking to me still. And it was it was kind of common sense to us out of the gate that we would invest the money in this because it would come back to us, you know, magnified a hundredfold. Is there just a challenge to maybe the profitability or the size of some a lot of the retail counts to what the cost of overhead of that? That I don't think so. Customer support or anything? That's not really I don't think so. I think a lot of these companies are run by techies. Uh, who have a, a techie engineering mindset, which is great because you can build really cool backend products. But these are people who are probably not the most socially adept, <laughs> you know, myself, maybe sometimes included. And as a result, sometimes you need to kick in the ass to say, hey, look, you're not helping the average person. You're looking at it from your engineering perspective, and that's not the way the average person thinks. And And so, Sometimes you have to get out of your little bubble and, and, and look at the real world. And Silicon Valley, where I, I live, has that problem. Traditionally, Apple's good at it. Google's getting better at it. They didn't start out that way. But um, you know, it's, it's always been a problem here. 
So when it actually comes to you know assets under management, whether it's with yourself or the industry as a whole, what are we seeing in regards to what is typically on the retail side versus we'll call it high net worth or institutional side? And has that been changing over the last few years? Oh, yeah. So the first thing that we'll talk about is there's been a net outflow on a coin-by-coin basis from exchanges to other places, whether it's cold storage or services like Abra that have seen a net inflow. So some of our competitors have also seen net inflows. Why are people taking coins off of exchanges? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, exchanges are notorious for getting hacked, whether it's for their own fault or users' own fault via you know poor 2FA planning process or whatever. Also, because now we offer yield, right? So if you're going to hold Bitcoin, and you've, especially if you've got seven, eight figures worth of Bitcoin, which a lot of our users do, we have a lot of VC types, private equity, high net worth users. They're saying, hey, why would I want to keep this on a Coinbase when I can move it to Abra? I'll get a few hundred Bitcoin a year in, in interest or whatever it is, tens of Bitcoin, hundreds, whatever, by parking it there. And I'll dig in on Abra's risk management to make sure that it's that it's a good deal for me. And so that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a net outflow from exchanges either into cold storage if they don't trust anyone, which is totally fine, or into places like Abra, which will pay that yield. Second, the number of institutions coming into crypto, it hasn't quite reached escape velocity, but it is now kind of at the cusp of that hockey stick where everyone, everyone, like there's an iConnections event in Miami this week that my team is at which is this allocator conference, and they're all there. There's not enough hours in the day to process the inbound interest they're getting, which is totally different from three years ago when we had to cold call to get that interest. Okay, Now it's the other way around. It's a 180. And so so that tells you where we're at. Now, what's interesting is, is the people who were running a lot of those institutions were personally investing in crypto. Right, knowing that it was too early for their funds, their LPs, the old people that were running them or investing in them, whatever. But that's changed now. They're all being asked, what's your crypto strategy? What's your allocation strategy here? The prices have come down. What are we doing? The times have totally changed in this regard. And so are we saying that like majority of the assets management amongst most players has been on the retail side and that we are slowly moving more of that percentage of that AUM over to the higher net worth? To a certain degree. I think crypto has traditionally been a retail play. Leverage in crypto has been largely driven by retail up until now. Now you're seeing a lot of crypto first funds that are billion strong, especially during the last run up. Maybe they're not billion strong now, but, but hundreds <laughs> of millions strong. I don't know. But I think that both are going to show network effects. The, the, the thing about the price of crypto is, is that if you map the network effects, the number of users matters just as much as the amount of money coming in. So a bunch of retail users putting a certain amount in is actually worth more than one institutional investor putting the same amount in because of the network effects that it generates. And history has proven this to be true. It's not something that I'm just kind of summarizing or whatever. It's 100% true. This would have to be the first time that's not true in any network effect-based business that I've seen. That doesn't mean we don't want the money coming in. It just means that the price, unless every institution in the world is doing it at the same time to get you know business-driven network effects, is still going to come mostly from retail over the next few years. And so, so it can't just be that you know a few funds are putting a billion dollars into crypto and all of a sudden the price explodes. It's not going to work that way. But like I said, even for us to stay two standard deviations below the median, we have to get up into the 70s in terms of Bitcoin's price over the next 18 months, which is which is an astounding number. So talking about the yield-based 
products, right? There's been a lot of conversation on Twitter, maybe in the last couple of weeks with some different firms or like a lot of FUD, we'll call it, or, you know, accusations going around like with Celsius or different firms, right? Because maybe Luna, UST blows up and everyone's looking around for different things. And maybe all platforms are not so transparent that's easy for people to audit in a way that makes them feel comfortable. So when people are parking their assets with you guys, right? Like how the question always comes really is how do you guys generate the yield, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other side is, is there really that much borrowing demand out there? And especially if we're in a bear market. Yep. Yeah, it's a great question. That's why I started out our discussion today just talking about risk management. It was the very first thing I mentioned at the beginning. And, and I spend a, an entire day a week just digging in to the same things over and over from a risk management perspective. What does risk management mean in the crypto space when you're generating yield? It means who are the borrowers? Okay. What is the borrow profile? What is the business they're in? What type of collateral in the crypto world are you taking? I Meaning if you're lending dollars, how much Bitcoin are you taking? And what's the loan to value ratio of the amount they're borrowing versus the Bitcoin? It's like a HELOC loan on a house. What's the house worth? What percentage am I allowed to borrow? And that represents sound practices, hopefully from the bank's perspective, because we need the banks to actually survive, right? And flourish because otherwise our system collapses. And so crypto has kind of developed its own similar system. And we are now, and I think Abra has really led the way in this, started to, to, to find that there are best practices. And now that others are seeing that Abra is being very open about this, they're saying, hey, well, if Abra is doing this, maybe we should be doing this as well. And, and we knew that this was going to be an advantage for us over time. We measure things like duration. What does duration mean? Well, if you have a lending book, what is the average length of the loan versus the amount of time that it takes for a user to get access to their funds if they want to withdraw? And if those two are out of whack, you end up with a run in the worst case scenario on the bank, right? And so you have to make sure that they're not out of whack. Otherwise, you're taking unnecessary risk with people's money. And so I know firsthand that a lot of others in our space are not doing this. And it's a problem. So, and then there's DeFi, which is this whole other big black hole, which is to say, how much are you allocating to DeFi? How are you digging in to the risks associated with those positions? How are returns on those DeFi contracts, smart contracts being generated? If it's just money being printed, which is what was happening in the case of Luna, you have to dig in and say, okay, is there a flywheel to your earlier question that's going to be created by this to, to the point where a little allocation might be worth a little bit of risk? Or is it the kind of thing where it's just going to go on like this and at some point, you know, somebody's going to have to pay the piper and it's going to blow up versus are we using the DeFi to actually do real lending to generate real yield, right? Which makes a lot of sense for certain applications. And, and so we dig in at all in all of these areas with a big staff which in the net gives you, in the net aggregate, gives you a risk management model that we lend against and then generates the yields that you see on our website. Guys, so you guys pretty much generate yield from either your lending services or within DeFi. You're not necessarily building companies or using that off your balance sheet? Correct. Awesome. And so for people that are listening, and obviously everyone's looking for yield in this environment, like what type of yield are you currently offering on what assets and typically what are the lockup terms, et cetera? Yeah. So for retail, it's it's near real time. Most people have one to seven day access to funds in Aber Earn, meaning they can withdraw whenever they want. It's not like a CD product. We may do that in the future for higher yield, but right now everybody has, has the same. And for dollar products, it's anywhere from seven and a half to eight and a half percent interest. 
And for Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's anywhere from, I believe we're at one and a half to like 3%. And then our own CPERX token is on staking is receiving 3%. And there's other tokens in there, but it's all in that kind of three to 8% range, depending upon what you're staking for the most part. And you have that available for retail side and institutional high net worth side, correct? Yeah, we have a partnership with Prime Trust. You're actually getting a, a trust account with them when you use Abra Earn. They're the ones paying the interest into your account. And uh, I believe we're the only ones in the space doing that. Got it. So for those that are listening, they've been also have seen BlockFi's uh, notice and their fine that they received, right? Kind of how are you guys from regulatory being compliant and allowing people to participate? Yeah. I'm not an expert on what they were doing. Yep. Mostly, I have a lot of lawyers, so I'll say they're an expert <laughs> on what we're doing. How do we allow non-accredited U.S. people to participate? Right. Well, that was the point, right? And so having this trust account was the key. And the idea being that because they're paying the interest, it's not a money transmitter paying the interest. And, and we delayed the launch of Aberearn a long time to put this model in place and to make sure that the financial institution that we were working with was comfortable with that model. And we paid a price for that. It delayed our growth. But we knew that this problem was coming because regulators wouldn't see it the same way that certain other players do. And we wanted to get out ahead of it. Got it. So it's basically like a non-custodial wallet, right? Um, no, I mean, they're effectively a trust bank. They're paying the interest into the, into the accounts. That's it. All right. And what are you seeing from a user standpoint? Like most people reside in the US or is it pretty much across the globe? How's that made up? So we are operating in 100 countries. Our user base has been huge. We've had over a million people now join to get access to CPERCs during that launch. It was super successful for us. We're taking a step back now and kind of figuring out the AverPerks 2.0 model, which we're going to hint at with some of the announcements we're making at Consensus. And we've had tremendous growth in the employee base. And so, you know, right now we're kind of enjoying this little bit of a lull, to be honest with you, because we've got so much growth to absorb. That if 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 Bitcoin was at one hundred and twenty five thousand right now, I'd I'd probably have no hair on my head and would be like pulling out the last like little bits out of my head, just given what was going on in in last summer. So I guess in that regard, it's it's good that we're like while we're growing, it's not as insane as it was like you know a year ago, but we are prepared for the next you know I think the next big spurt, which is I believe is coming this fall. We'll leave off with one last question. That is. I've definitely been a real estate investor for 20 years. And there was some recent article about you guys and Proppy. Yeah. You know, what's happening there? What can people expect and what products will you have? Yeah, 100%. So, so big fan of what they're doing in terms of their blockchain-based titling solution. We built a, a partnership to train real estate agents on what it means to borrow against crypto holdings, how you can get down payments for loans, and really preparing ourselves for the next phase, which I believe is, is most likely going to be combining traditional mortgages and crypto back loans, which I think you'll see in the next year from Aber and others in the space. But the amount of education and awareness that we're doing, I think, to prepare real estate agents for the coming onslaught of people who want to use crypto for real estate purchases is already seeing unbelievable. I'm shocked at the level of interest that we're getting in this. So at the highest level, basically, users, let's say they have Bitcoin, they can take that park with you, get a loan out either for the down payment and or for the full purchase price without having to sell the crypto and create a tax event. Right. Depending on the value of the, the home versus the amount of crypto they're holding. That's correct. All right. That sounds good. Uh, Bill, just uh, leave off any sites or anywhere to listeners go to. Yeah. Just you can download Abra. Just go to abra.com or go to the app or play store. 
Uh, you can follow Abra Global on Twitter. I'm also active uh, on Twitter at Bill Barheights, and you can find us uh, find us online. Thank you for coming out again. My pleasure.